In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Generally speaking, Canada Day on Parliament Hill is a big party. It's a celebration of all the good parts of an imperfect country. A friendly time for one and all. And it might be exactly like that this year. Then again, it might not. It may have started with some truckers upset by the cross-border vaccine mandate, but it's morphed into a rallying cry for people with a variety of grievances. Stand. I'm not leaving until the mandates are gone. It's not going to end. Until they do something, it's not going to end. As thousands and thousands of Canadians celebrate their nation's birthday, a much smaller number will be at Parliament Hill to resume the convoy protests that brought the capital to a standstill in January. Many of the organizers say that they will be there to peacefully protest, to hopefully win support for their cause. A couple of others don't say that. A leaked intelligence document suggests that while the vast majority will indeed be peacefully protesting, there are dangerous and violent elements also making Canada Day weekend plans. So who is going to Ottawa and why? What should we expect on July 1st? Should members of Parliament be meeting with organizers? And how ready are the police to ensure we don't see a repeat of last time? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Justin Ling is a freelance investigative journalist who covers, among many other things, misinformation, conspiracy theories, and extremism. He wrote this piece for Vice, but you can find a lot of his writing on these topics at bugeyedandshameless.com, which is his newsletter. Justin, that's a great name for a newsletter. What is it about? Thank you. I'm I'm, I'm happy about it. It's kind of a, a riff on a talking head song. It's beautiful and very memorable and... There's people coming back to Ottawa for another convoy protest on Canada Day. Can you fill me in on what's going on? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think this has been in the cards basically since the convoy was first cleared in February. I mean, there have been sort of these uh, prognostications from the convoy leadership that you know this is going to continue. Um, you know, they they made a, a smaller showing back in April with a sort of bikers rally, but I, I think the idea has been. You know, for the for the entirety of this year, that that Canada Day would be the next big sort of flexing of the muscle 
of this movement that has sort of come out of the original convoy. So to catch you up a little bit, I mean, the organizations and the organizers and the participants who came together, um, not just in Ottawa, but also in Toronto, in Victoria, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg, you name it. um, Those linkages were all very, very new. Um, you, You had never seen the sort of collaboration and connections between these anti-vaccine, anti-government, right-wing groups uh, prior to this convoy, at least not on the scale that we saw during the convoy. And coming out of the occupation, you saw a bunch of social media channels um, light up and continue to be active. You saw a lot of um, collaboration and cooperation between those organizations. Um, you saw new groups pop up, new organizers emerge, you know, new figures sort of take center stage. And it has been a really interesting sort of recalibration of this whole movement. Obviously, a bunch of the most public facing figures from the original occupation are either in jail or awaiting trial and are largely forbidden from taking part in this movement. So you've seen others step up to sort of fill that gap. And these are the folks who are kind of getting things in motion to show up on Canada Day. In in many cases, they're already in Ottawa. They've been holding a conference for the past several days. Um, And, uh, you know, they're gearing up to try and show the country that they're not done yet. It's not time to count them out. Many of the vaccine mandates may be gone, but their work uh, is not over. So at the center of the, uh, I guess I'll call it a preview story of this uh, convoy occupation that you wrote for Vice, is a leaked intelligence report, which I understand uh, you've since published on your newsletter. Mm -hmm. Where did this report come from? What exactly does it say about this protest? Right. So the report comes from an agency called the Integrated Terrorism Assessment Center. It has been around for quite some time. It's sort of um, utility has shifted a little bit over the years. But where it stands right now is that it's basically a channel for the federal, the national um, security apparatus to communicate possible threats to local law enforcement um, and other agencies in some cases. So in in this case, the center, or we call them ITAC, um, has sent out a missive to local law enforcement, particularly in in Ottawa, um, to say, you know, we expect there will be many of the same organizations and participants showing up in Ottawa on Canada Day, um, saying we expect it will be peaceful, just like they promised. We expect it will be rallies and demonstrations. Um, But otherwise, you know, they have not seen evidence there will be a sustained occupation, no evidence that violence will be carried out, no evidence that there will be targeted um, actions against politicians or the prime minister or what have you. Um, But here's the big caveat, you know, what ITAC does in particular, it doesn't it doesn't have its own operatives. It doesn't it doesn't do uh, wiretaps. It doesn't have undercover informants. It largely collects open source intelligence and sort of receives some information from the other uh, espionage and national security agencies. Right. And, you know, what ITAC is really good at is sort of, you know, combing through a lot of the open source stuff. A lot of the things that are being said on social media, on message boards being said by, um, you know, some smaller groups, some possibly, they call them IMVE actors or ideologically motivated violent extremist actors. <laughs> and ITAC in this case is noting an alarming rise in anti-government and especially violent anti-government rhetoric in advance of Canada Day. It makes very clear that it does not expect that this rhetoric is going to translate into real world violence, but it says it can't discount the the possibility. It's picking up on 
increasing language from some of these groups that they're tired of the peaceful protest. They're tired of going th- through things the quote unquote, you know, proper way. They're increasingly talking about the need to arrest public figures and the prime minister. They're increasingly talking about the need to carry out some sort of more kind of muscular response. Hmm. Um, you know, in, in some cases, maybe in retribution for the, the police operation that happened in Ottawa in February. And ITAC notes that this is a real problem. And it could actually lead, maybe not on Canada Day, but maybe some point in the future, it could actually lead to a lone wolf attack or to a small group carrying out maybe even just an unsophisticated attack uh, or targeted harassment or what have you. Um, ITAC is basically drawing a big red circle around this and saying, you know, we have to be worried about this. In a second, we'll get to... um differentiating, I guess, the the small groups that could be prone to violence from the large number of people that are apparently there to protest. But since you mentioned there's a conference going on right now, and a number of these folks are already in Ottawa, I understand a few days ago they were inside the parliament buildings. Uh, what was that about? Yeah, so it's an interesting problem. So there, there's there been a guy who since earlier this year, around March, April, has been running from Vancouver to Ottawa. His name is James Top. He's a veteran. He's a former mem- member of the reserves. He's been in the process of getting released and being court-martialed because he recorded a video of himself in uniform endorsing the convoy. And the hmm. in-uniform piece there is really important. He's not being punished because he supported the convoy. He's being punished because he used the, the uniform of the Canadian Armed Forces to do so, which is completely improper. So ever since then, he's been running across the country in opposition to vaccine mandates, in support of of, um, police officers, uh, Canadian Armed Forces personnel, bureaucrats, civil servants who have been released from their jobs for refusing to get vaccinated. Now, James Topp is is not a particularly radical figure, best as anyone can tell. He has made some, I think, alliances with some more rabidly anti-vaccine groups, in in one case with a more um, extremist organization. But generally speaking, James Topp's message has been, I don't want to talk about vaccines. I want to talk about vaccine mandates. Right. I want to talk about you know the the public servants who have been you know uh, who have left their jobs because of this. And you know when he got closer and closer to Ottawa, he clearly you know made some good connections with conservative members of parliament. Apparently, also one NDP member of parliament. But we haven't actually heard from them. He, uh, in some cases, had done interviews, conversations with uh, some of those MPs. And when he showed up in Ottawa, many of those MPs came out to shake his hand and, in some cases, to sit and listen to him speak. Um, that, in and of itself, I don't think is a great surprise. I mean, this guy's a veteran. Right. He just, you know, schlepped you know, most of the way across the country. And again, it's specifically about vaccine mandates in his case. But here's the thing, you know, when some of those MPs showed up to the committee room where he had been invited to speak, they noticed two guys flanking him. One of the guys was Tom Marazzo, the former spokesperson for the occupation, um, and another guy named Paul Alexander, who's a former Trump administration advisor, um, he's Canadian, um, but he has espoused some of the most ridiculous and anti-scientific, anti-vaccine nonsense you can imagine. He mm-hmm. is one of the most influential and public anti-vaccine doctors in the world right now. And I know a couple MPs saw this and went, James, nice to meet you. I'm taking off. Hmm. I know a couple MPs sat in the committee room, listened to a part of the presentation, got up and left. But many of the MPs stayed. And we're talking about somewhere around a dozen MPs who sat in that room, who listened to 
Paul Alexander, you know, wax about how these vaccines are incredibly dangerous and how they've killed children and how masks are dangerous and PCR testing is fake and public di- social distancing is 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 a farce and a scam. You know, they sat and they listened to this and they also sat and listened to Tom Morasso, you know, you know, rant about um, you know the tyrannical government um, that had cracked down on the occupation in Ottawa, including a line where he says that he he thinks Canada's you know slipping towards a civil war and the only way to prevent it is to collaborate with him. And his, and his movement. So, you know, this is completely unhinged. And yeah. those MPs sat in that room. And towards the end, you know, one MP in particular, Jeremy Patster, put his hand up and says, you know, thank you so much for coming. You have supporters. You've always had supporters. You know, good luck. Others shook hands, took pictures with them. Um, and you know, this has been probably the most high profile and significant platforming of this movement since this whole thing began. So just quickly, before we get on to the more extremist stuff, you know, you mentioned vaccine mandates, and that's what TOP is there to protest. Haven't most restrictions around COVID basically everywhere in the country been lifted already? Like, I mean, listen, if you could understand it back in February, maybe that's one thing, but there's nothing now. Like, what are they so angry about? I, I think in many cases, it's 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 mandates for, for public sector workers. I mean, they are now advocating strongly that anyone removed from their jobs or suspended um, for not being vaccinated should be reinstated and reimbursed for the time they were off work, which, you know, I, I think... It's not a completely obscene position, um, but it, it, I think it's a clear sign that the goalposts are moving a bit. You know, this movement, by and large, is not going to be satisfied with any, you know, reasonable policy position. I mean, right. you know, I don't want to speak for James Top because I, I do believe that there's a real chance that his concern really is about folks who have been removed from their jobs, folks who have gone through hardships because they won't get vaccinated, and fair enough. But many of the other people backing this movement, you know, the folks who organized the occupation, um, the folks who are supporting the Canada Day rallies, the folks who are, you know, behind James Top, they they don't care about vaccine mandates. They believe the vaccines themselves are dangerous. I mean, you've mm-hmm. heard language from these people that has said bluntly they won't be happy until the government stops recommending vaccines altogether. They won't be happy until, in some cases, as Paul Alexander has said extremely clearly on multiple occasions, he won't be happy until there's a tribunal set up to prosecute public health officials, mayors, premiers, the prime minister, um, you know, for, in some cases, crimes against humanity or war crimes. I mean, Tom Morazzo was tweeting earlier this year that he won't be happy until Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau are tried and prosecuted for attempted murder. I mean, you know, this is what these people want in many cases. It is not a reasonable policy aim. It is nothing less than a, a, a you know, retribution for, for many public officials. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Maybe explain to me the darker side of this and maybe start with just uh, who is Marcus Ray and, and what is his freedom movement? 
Yeah. So, so Marcus Ray was a participant in the occupation in January and February, but not one who I really recognized, not one who had any significant following. I don't even think he was even there for the whole time, but coming out of police clearing the encampment in February, he started getting a little more and more vocal. I mean, he's a guy who he's a motivational speaker to begin with. Um, he largely got into this work after writing a book um, about his his life as a former exotic male dancer um, and sort of leaving his life as a stripper and 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 you know getting back on the the straight and narrow, I suppose. Um, and he's kind of used his his skills as a motivational speaker to start addressing crowds, um, you know, who, who've come out to various kind of pro convoy rallies across the country. Started doing interviews and podcasts. Started amassing a big social media following, specifically on TikTok, where he's posting videos constantly. And he is pretty compelling. He's a pretty compelling guy, especially in a movement that sort of has sort of lacked leaders for the last little while. He's carved out a niche for himself amongst folks who are looking for a new sort of person to get behind. And his language has been a lot more direct than some other organizers. I mean, he has explicitly said the time for peaceful protest is over. He has specifically said it's time you go back to Ottawa and not back down this time. He has come up with this absolutely harebrained scheme alongside another organizer called Christopher James. Um, this harebrained scheme largely informed by the sovereign citizens movement, or sometimes we call it the free man on the land movement. And it's a belief that Canadian laws and the Canadian government are illegitimate, um, that by showing up to a courthouse and saying the right series of words, that they can exempt themselves from Canadian law, um, that they can bestow upon themselves the right and authority to enforce the Constitution. He has started this movement called Constitutional Sheriff Association of Canada that is largely cribbed from a rather extremist movement in the U.S., that basically posits that enough of them show up in Ottawa around some unspecified courthouse, that they can give themselves the authority to administer the laws of the country, that they can have the prime minister and health minister arrested, that they can basically abolish whatever laws they feel like, and that they're not going to leave Ottawa until it gets done. He at least has said explicitly that he's bought defensive gear uh, to protect themselves from rubber bullets or pepper spray or what have you. Oh uh, they said clearly they're not going to back down uh, when police show up. Uh, their plan is to surround a courthouse and and not leave until they get their way. This is an extremely concerning development, but I think it's an inevitable one. I mean, the language from this movement has been since the very beginning, um, you know, we, we are on the side of right. We're on the side of good. The government is tyrannical. It is authoritarian. Is it illegitimate? And we won't stop until we get our way. The one thing that I found fascinating in your piece uh, was the sort of schism that seems to be developing between different parts of this movement, between uh, folks like James Topp or folks like Marcus Ray. Can you kind of describe what's happening there? Because it seems like a few months ago, um, they were much more on the same page. And now there are some wildly different objectives. I don't know that they were ever really on the same page, to be honest with you. I mean, okay. from the kind of origins of the convoy, you always had a schism between some folks who are a little bit more interested in sort of the street politics versus federal politics. I mean, um, Pat King was the, you know, the, the kind of leader of this more motley crew of individuals who, um, you know, weren't terribly interested 
in following what the the spokespeople for the movement had to say, weren't terribly interested in meeting with, you know, the Conservative Party. You know, their view was um, any sort of negotiation, any sort of collaboration is capitulation. You know, we have the power, we should enforce it. And he had a substantial following. There was an attempt really to discredit him, to say that he was just some hanger on. But I can promise you a sizable amount of this movement consider themselves followers of Pat King more than they consider themselves followers of Tamara Leach, for example, hmm. uh, who was sort of the, the face of a lot of this because she started the, the fundraiser. Um, so there's always been this sort of divide and there's always been extremist movements integrated into this, this movement. Um, there has been an attempt to say that the extremist movements are, again, only hangers on, only followers, only trying to exploit this grassroots movement. But I can tell you that's, that's wrong. There's a group called Diagalon, um, led by a guy named Jeremy McKenzie. It's sort of a loose-knit group of kind of far-right streamers, many of whom have expressed white supremacist, anti-Semitic, almost neo, in some cases neo-Nazi beliefs. Right. They have been celebrated within the convoy movement. There has, you know, for example, James Toff has gone on Jeremy McKenzie's podcast and had a pleasant conversation. I mean, they are not ostracized by any means. And it is members of Diagalon who were arrested in Coots, Alberta and charged with a plot to kill RCMP officers. I mean, it is just wrong to say that there is this big split inside the movement. It's more accurate to say it's sort of a a, a hodgepodge of different groups with different aims. Um, but by and large, you know, they don't disagree. I mean, they, they kind of feed off each other's energy. Hmm. Now, I should say, Marcus Ray in particular has been denounced by other members of this movement, including the folks around James Topp, including even, you know, very boisterous anti-vaccine advocate uh, Chris Skye. Uh, they say that his rhetoric is too extremist, it's too inflammatory. Um, but it's it's really unclear whether or not that means anything. You know, we don't know. It's really hard to tell how many people line up behind each individual sort of leader in this movement. Ray says he has somewhere in the ballpark of 5,000 people coming out for him to Ottawa, uh, including many ex-military, ex-police. I think that's probably a wild overestimation, but I don't think it's it's bizarre to think that he could probably amass a few hundred people. Um, and if it's true that he has bought this defensive kit that he's talked about, uh, I think that should be extremely worrying to people. I mean, he actually has amassed huge crowds of people as he's toured the country. I mean, he was in Dawson City a few a matter of weeks ago. He was out in, touring up and down British Columbia. He's been crisscrossing the country, building um, you know this movement, and according to his own people, recruiting followers to come to Ottawa with him. So this is extremely worrying, and and we also should be very alive to the fact that just because some other organizers, you know, say he's not part of their movement doesn't mean that people are listening. So I won't ask you to predict um, the future, but but what should people in Ottawa or people watching prepare for? You know, we can talk about the police response in a second, but just in terms of all these disparate groups who, who have sort of the same goals descending on the Capitol, but also, as opposed to the other protests, Canada Day is also usually a celebration uh, on Parliament Hill, right? So what could this scene look like? You know, I, I, again, I tend to think that ITAC has it right, that this will be a relatively calm, relatively peaceful you know, candidate. I trust folks like James Topp and Tom Morazzo when they say their plan is not to hold demonstrations or protests on Canada Day. Their plan is not to occupy the city. They say they're going to show up at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, the National War Memorial, and hold some sort of you know demonstration. 
that I think will will probably be fairly low key, much like the one they did in in April. That was, you know, certainly a stage for some wild anti vaccine nonsense and some some intense conspiracy theorizing, but was otherwise pretty respectful and you know uh, kind of assembled and and dispersed within a matter of hours. Um, so I trust them when they say that because I've seen no evidence to the contrary that that could change. But it looks like the the main quote unquote the main organizers are gearing up for a pretty low key candidate day. They're saying they. they they, they want to really leverage the relationships they built with the conservative party um, and with other political movements and sort of stretch out their, their, their goals throughout the summer to see kind of what political leverage they can get in the months to come. So I think they've largely moved away from these big sort of, you know, really in your face events like the occupation towards a more sustained political organizing movement. And I think they may yet have some success on that front. I mean, the conservative party is clearly willing to deal with them. Um, Pierre Polyev has worked really hard to try and get support from those sorts of organizers. Um, you've seen those conservative members of parliament show up and, and you know, kind of, you know, shake their hands and, and say, we're with you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's what's to expect from them in the months to come. But I think as many of those organizers try and go more mainstream, you will see the more radical elements of this movement try and flex their muscles a little more. And that's where Marcus Ray's coming from. We still don't know what his Canada Day plans are. He actually has kept them relatively under wraps. He has previewed this idea of showing up at a courthouse in Ottawa. We don't know which courthouse. We don't know whether that's the Supreme Court or the courthouse on Elgin Street. So what that could look like is a big question mark. And I think, you know, anyone coming out for Canada Day should be prepared for that. I don't think, again, I don't think, and much like ITAC does not think, much like seemingly the Ottawa police don't think, I don't think this is going to get hairy. I don't think we're going to have our own January 6th moment on Canada Day. But these things are incredibly hard to predict. I mean, the the big questions are, you know, how many people does Marcus Ray get out? Um do Ottawa police do a good job of setting up a cordon around the courthouse in advance? Um, you know, do they intend on staying there if and when the whatever courtroom says to Marcus Ray get lost? You know, what what happens if things don't go his way? And this is sort of you know the the constant sort of worst case scenario planning you have to do in this situation. I think for the average person showing up to Ottawa for Canada Day, this is nothing to worry about. You know, listen to the cops. You know. Follow any any good advice you get. Uh, you know, follow the news. Keep tabs on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Um, but I, you know, I don't think there's a huge threat there. But again, things can move very quickly. Last thing, then, and you just touched on it. What do we know about how seriously the Ottawa police are preparing for this? What steps they've got planned, if anything? I mean, the first protest spiraled out of control because of an initial reluctance for police to step in. Is there a potential for making that mistake again? I, I, I don't think they'll be making the same mistakes at the very least. You've already seen a plan from them to basically block off most of the downtown core for cars. Um, so, you know, I don't I don't foresee another, you know, occupation of downtown. And, and what's more, like I said, um, the the main convoy organizers are, are not talking about an occupation. They're not telling people to drive into the downtown core. They're not planning for any huge uh, protest or rally. So you know, I, I think on that front, the adult police are, are probably pretty, pretty well set. The big question for me is whether or not they are keeping adequate tabs on not just Marcus Ray, but 
whether or not the Diagon guys are going to come to town, whether or not, let's say, the, the folks on the Gatineau side, um, the, the Fufada are, are planning, I think I got that name right, are planning something kind of more muscular with their elbows up. You know, I think there's a lot of moving parts to this. There's a lot of groups and organizations and organizers who have a whole bunch of different ideas about what things should look like. Some of them are probably being pretty vocal in that organizing, and some of them are probably being pretty quiet about it. Um, so... I, I, I think there's a lot of reason to be concerned. I, I think with the benefit of hindsight about what went wrong last time, I can only imagine that the Ottawa Police Service are heavily leaning on the Ontario Provincial Police, the RCMP, CSIS, any number of, of national security agencies that they can get on the phone, uh, and that there will be a tightly integrated response this time. And I think that's kind of, in many cases, the best you can hope for. Um, because that certainly was not the case when this convoy showed up in January. And that's what stymied a huge amount of the response, just the lack of communication, the lack of coordination, the lack of collaboration that went into this response. I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens Canada Day. Justin, thank you for this. Are you spending your Canada Day on the Hill now? Unfortunately, yes. Well, stay safe, man. Thanks again. Thanks. Justin Ling, writing in Vice... You can subscribe to his newsletter for free, at least at first, by going to bugeyedandshameless.com. We don't quite have that kind of URL, but you can go to thebigstorypodcast.ca to find the rest of our episodes. You can also talk to us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can write to us, hello, at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can call us and rant as much as you like by dialing 416-935-5935. As always, if you're listening in a podcast player that lets you rate or review, please do so. If you are not, you have to tell a friend in real life about this show. I don't make the rules. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.